If there's anybody in the narthex that wants to come in, there are seats in the first class section, otherwise known as the front rows, you know, just a couple. I appreciate you guys moving forward. Uh, thank you guys for, for moving forward. Uh, those of us who remain, uh, because we are not um, the youth of the church, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 7, beginning in verse 53. Now, it's actually the, the very last verse of John chapter um, 7, and it's kind of, it's, it's weird how it's, it's put there together. And, and we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about, there's a little note probably in almost all of your Bibles that talks about the earliest manuscripts do not discuss chapter 7, verse 53 through 811. But we are today. <laughs> we're going we're gonna to work our way through John, and we cannot dismiss the story um, of Jesus. So, let's... Um, Hear the word of the Lord from John chapter, beginning in John chapter 7, verse 53, through the 11th verse of chapter 8. They went each to his own house, but Jesus went to the Mount of Olives. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. All the people came to him, and he sat down and taught them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and placing her in the midst, they said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the, law of Mo- in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such a woman. What do you say? This they said to test him, that they might have some charge to bring against him. And Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground, but when they heard it, They went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. And Jesus stood up and said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, Neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And we all say, The grass withers and the flower falls but the word of the Lord remains forever. Well, let me ask you this. Um, how many of you still have children in your home? Right? So if you have children in your home, or if you once had children in your home, think back. Think back to the days of what I would call perpetual conflict. Just perpetual conflict, right? I don't know if that's ever happened in your home. Um, it's never happened in mine. I'm just, I've heard stories, right? So if you have one or more children in your house, chances are um, you have some conflict. And this is a wonderful opportunity for the gospel to be played out, right? You know, as children are, are, are you know, hitting each other, working out disagreements. How, what does forgiveness look like? What is receiving forgiveness? What is extending forgiveness? How do we work these things out in the midst of the, our, our homes, how does the gospel work itself out in the lives of children? This is a wonderful opportunity. Now, if you're a parent in the throes of it, you don't think this is a wonderful opportunity, right? You're thinking this is more of a burden, really. But let me give you a, a hypothetical scenario. So, um, have you ever ha- heard some sort of embellishment of the story of conflict in your home with your children? to paint that participant's story in a favorable light? Maybe. Maybe somebody's like advocating for their cause. Like something like this. Dad, 
that I just finished doing my homework and I was picking up my Bible to have my devotions and pray for the salvation of my brother. When he came up and he hit me, unprovoked, Dad, I think it's time you stepped up and teach him a lesson now. I've made a list of possible judgments and punishments that I think might be just in this situation. I'm going to leave that here and pray that the Lord would give you wisdom (laughs) as you adjudicate this indecorous violation of your good rules here at home. Now, if you've heard that or anything like that, you may be thinking, this story is not real, right? Because I always asked my children uh, when they come to uh, tell and, you know, what happened, I always say, what happened just before that? Yeah, I know you were hit. What happened just before that? And so when, as, as parents, we, we oftentimes have a little bit of skepticism in, in, our, in our midst, thinking like, is this story true? Is this story really the way it's worked itself out? Now, if you look at John chapter 8, we have a similar situation going on, because when you look at the brackets in your Bible, it actually says, well, this story, um, this section of Scripture... The earliest manuscripts do not include chapter 7, verse 53 through 8, 11. So what do we do with it? What do we do with what we would call a spurious text? Well, um, let me give you some thoughts about this. Now, this particular story was absent from a lot of major Greek manuscripts that would bear strong witness to John's original text. So they were not in the earliest Greek manuscripts, but they were in the earliest Latin manuscripts. So different church fathers would say, like, this should be in John, this shouldn't be in John. Um, Let me give you a couple. Um, The earliest patristic writers uh, oftentimes say that this story was true, but they, they struggle with whether or not it should be in the Bible. For example, you know, Ambrose mentions this account and he died in 397 A.D. Again, that's many centuries or a few centuries after. Uh, Augustine mentions it, uh, and he thinks that it was, should have been in John. Actually, Augustine uh, believed the story was in the original text and was taken out because they thought that if they took this, uh, if they left this story in the Gospel of John and the earliest manuscripts, then there might be those who might advocate for adultery and sexual promiscuity in the midst of the church. So Augustine thought, well, it was taken out of John's manuscripts for that reason. Um, Jerome, who actually is um, writing the Latin Vulgate, um, he thought that everybody knew it, and it was a true event, and he put it into John's manuscript in the midst of the Latin Vulgate. So all of this account uh, sort of lines itself up saying, so all the church fathers, all the early fathers would say this about this, that it was a true event but there's a discrepancy among the early manuscripts of whether or not it should be in the Gospel of John or not. I would say the vast majority would say, yes, it should be, even though we couldn't find it in some of the earliest Greek manuscripts. Now, some of us might read that and read that bracketed and go, well, how can we know that that the Scripture is true? How can we know that the Bible is true? And I'm here to tell you that um, this story does not... Um, take away from any other parts of the Scripture. It does not undermine who Jesus is, what He does in terms of um, mercy and grace in the midst of this woman, um, and rather it, rather it upholds the law. 
So I'm going to take it as a part of Scripture. I do believe that this, um, this story happened. Again, most of history, we would say that, um, that this story did happen. And there's just a little bit of disputed evidence of whether or not it was in the earliest manuscripts. Now, let me give you a caution. When you come to a text like this, one of the things that you don't want to do is you don't want to build all of your theology around this particular text, okay? But quite frankly, you don't want to build your theology around one particular text ever. You want to look at the totality of Scripture and build your theology upon all of it. So, so be, that's just a word of caution. Um, but as we get into this text, I do want us to see this as a beautiful picture of the gospel. Because this is where Jesus uses mercy and grace and truth to redeem the condemned. And I think that as I think about this particular text, it has a wonderful bearing in our own lives today. Uh, because I think many of us sit underneath this idea of condemnation. You see, this particular text, you know, what they were trying to do is the scribes, and again, like the scribes, uh, as we think about the Pharisees and the scribes, the scribes are, are the, um, the lawyers of the day. Uh, they are the ones who are looking at the law. And you see this in, in uh, John chapter 8. Early in the morning, he came again to the temple. So this is just after, uh, a day after or so, where Jesus says, you know, in verse 37 of John chapter 7, on the last day of the feast, the great uh, day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his hearts will flow rivers of living water. Now, when you look down at the divisions among the people in verses 40 through 52, you realize that the scribes, the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jewish nation do not like the fact that Jesus has equated himself with God, and he's essentially saying that all of the feasts, all of the temple uh, furnishings, everything in the Old Testament is pointing to him, and he is the fulfillment of all that they were looking for. So they don't like that, and they want to put him to death. They're trying to figure out how they can um, undermine Jesus. And if they can't put him to death directly, what they're going to do is they're going to try to discredit him. And so what you see here is you see a testing that occurs. How do we know that it's a test? Well, the scripture tells us so. It says, the scribes and Pharisees, um, they said this to, in verse 6, they, th this they said to test him. Now, what's the test? Guys, this is one of the most wicked stories in all of scripture. You see what happens when men rally around to try to discredit another man. Or, and really, they use this woman as a pawn in their strategy. You see, when the Romans were actually in charge of Jerusalem at this point, the Jews did not have the authority to put anyone to death. We understand that later on because Jesus actually went to Caiaphas and Caiaphas had the, um, or Pontius Pilate, you know, was sent, uh, Caiaphas sent Jesus to Pontius Pilate because he didn't have the authority because at that time the Romans said, Jews, you can't um, bear capital punishment anywhere. So what they do is they bring this woman who's caught in adultery and based upon the Jewish law, she should be stoned because of her adulterous relationship. But what they're doing is they're saying, okay, let's trick Jesus. Because if Jesus says, you know, let, he, she shouldn't be stoned, they will then take him to the Sanhedrin and say, he doesn't hold up the law of Moses, thereby discrediting him. 
But if he says, yes, this woman should be stoned, they would then take him to the Roman authority, and the Roman authority would then deal with Jesus. You see, he was sort of caught in a catch-22, and they had laid a trap that they thought was foolproof to catch Jesus. And the wickedness of this is they find a woman who is caught in adultery. Now, this is significant because the scribes and the Pharisees, again, these pillars, seemingly pillars of the community, brought a woman who had been caught in adultery. Now, in the Jewish law, when you look at uh, Leviticus uh, as well as Exodus, you look at the law, you have to literally be caught in the act of adultery. It can't be like a, a witness comes. There has to be multiple witnesses who actually catch two people committing adultery. They see it with their own eyes. There can be not a shadow of a shade of doubt regarding this. So they set a trap and they used a woman um, and they found this woman and they have eyewitnesses who have caught her and then they drag her in uh, to the temple. And I'm sure they're not you know, gentle with this woman. And they bring this woman, they drag her to the temple, and they throw her probably on the ground. I would imagine she's probably not upright at this point. And she, she may or may not be clothed, or whether or not she has a robe on her body. We're not sure. But she has been demeaned, and she has been used by the powerful. This is a wicked situation. And it's all to test Jesus. Now, what's despicable and just absolutely despicable about this is that these, they not only came, but they probably came with rocks in hand and accusing this woman in the act of adultery. Um, and what Jesus does is remarkable because Jesus knows that this is a, a trick, but but even, even so, look at what Jesus does. Because again, when this woman is dragged in, in the midst of the teaching, all of the eyes in the community are upon this woman and the shame of this woman. And everyone is condemning this woman. Now, was she committing adultery? There's, there's no disputing that. She did commit adultery. And yet what Jesus does is Jesus takes all of the focus off of her and he places it on himself. Now, just, just in that alone, we see this idea of, you know, taking the wrath <laughs> from other people and the condemnation, and he removes everyone's stares from this woman to himself. And he, he probably gets down on the floor, and probably very near this woman, and he begins to, to draw. Now, what we don't know is what he actually drew. It's the only place in Scripture that we actually see Jesus ever writing anything. And we have no idea what he writes. There's been speculation, but that's all it is. I mean, some have speculated that he began to, to write maybe the law of Moses out, maybe the Shema that we uh, went over today in the Old Testament reading. There are others who have said, well, well maybe what he was writing was he was beginning to write uh, down names. I, I thought this was funny. Um, R.C. Sproul actually said um, he was, you know, just again, he was speculating. This is totally um, just speculating that when he began to write names in, Again, remember, this woman's accused of adultery, and the men who are coming there who have stones ready to stone her um, are actually, he begins to write names in, in the sand that might 
uh, be similar to women that they may have committed adultery with as well. What's crazy about this story is how many people are accused? One person is accused. I just don't know if you know this or not, um, but adultery is a team sport. There's always two in the midst of adultery, and yet they only bring this woman. Maybe the other adulterer was actually in that group of, of men there. Maybe that group of men who, who we really probably think probably um, worked it out to actually catch this, this woman in this act were all a part of this. And Jesus begins to write names in the sand of, of people um, that um, were also fallen into adultery. Uh, let, let me just um, clear up this. Jesus is not easy on sexual sin, okay? Not at all. As a matter of fact, when you think about uh, Matthew chapter 5, you know, in the Sermon on the Mount, here's what Jesus said about adultery. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away, for it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell. Later in 1 Corinthians, we read that Paul says, flee from sexual immorality. Like, get up and run away from it. You know, the authors of the New Testament, they're, they're not light on sexual sin. And we think about this idea of sexual sin, and, and we live today in a, in a culture, in a world that it just seems to be pervaded by sexual sin all around us. I mean, how many men uh, struggle with pornography and lust? How many, and, and quite frankly, how many women struggle with pornography and lust today? How many people are struggling with sexual sin? And, 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 the, and the reality of sexual sin is that, um, you know, one of the things that happens sometimes is, you know, guys will talk about or, or women will talk about some of their problems, some of their um, issues in, in the life of, of a small group or a life group. Um, and sometimes we talk about uh, some of our problems and some of our sin issues, um, and, and, and we, we kind of laugh about them to some degree, like such as, you know, like, oh, I got angry again. I can't believe I said this or, you know, I, I didn't do what I was supposed to do or, you know, I get anxious. And sometimes we'll, 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 we'll talk about those very openly. But you know what we don't talk about in the midst of life groups and small groups? We don't openly talk about the shame that comes with our sexual, um, you know, our sexual sins. Like nobody in the life group says, yeah, get, get a load of, you know, my wife, boy, she was, whoo, you know, she, she struggled a lot with sexual sin, you know? Nobody ever says that because there's, there's this deep connectedness that sexual sin has in our lives. And this woman who's caught in the act of adultery, the amount of shame that she has, I mean, look, look at, when we look at um, John chapter 8 again, and they continue to ask him, um, because again, this woman is in front of her, and once more, you know, Jesus in verse 7 says, And as they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, Let him who is without sin among you 
be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, Jesus there is displaying great mercy. And again, what is mercy? Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. Grace is unmerited favor. You actually get something with grace. Mercy is not getting what you do deserve. And Jesus flows forth mercy right here. He actually uses the law to say the law was put in place so that it would teach you, instruct you, and guide you back to God. It wasn't meant to be punitive. It was meant to be restorative. Like the law of God was given so that we might live lives of flourishing and faithfulness to him. But you guys are using the law to batter and to bludgeon this woman. And they stand in condemnation. Now, one of the things that we see is they probably came, you know, with stones because Jesus says to him, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Now, at this point, you know, they've all got rocks in their hand and, and each one of them begins to go away starting with the oldest. And I think this is important because if you've been around long enough, you know, you understand that you have fallen over and over again. Matter of fact, those older guys realize that they have probably committed adultery in their hearts over and over again. But the pride of youth, the lust of the flesh, the anger of young men allows them to be the last ones to go. But rather than condemning this woman, Jesus actually calls her to faithfulness. You know, um, forgiveness, let me just, um, forgiveness in this way means that you don't get what you deserve. David Pallison says, forgiveness means you don't get what you deserve. Think about it. Because God is unfair, we have hope. Instead of fairness, you get someone who is deadly serious about wrong, but acts on your behalf in ways that are unconceivably unfair. And what he's speaking about there is when Jesus takes all of our sins upon himself so that we might be reconciled to God. Now, again, the idea of condemnation here is this um, idea of, you know, it's, it's a, a term that we don't use a lot, but we do use in buildings. We talk about a condemned building. And what does that mean? A condemned building means that it is unfit for use. Like we would not meet in this building if it were condemned. It would be unfit for our use as an assembly. And we have all kinds of, you know, um, rules and regulations about you know, condemning buildings. And what we see is that when the people are bringing this woman and they're condemning her, they're not thinking of her as a person who is made in the image of God, who using the law to restore her so that she might live a life of faithfulness, they are condemning her and they're looking at her and saying, you are unfit for use. I think as the church, especially as it re regards um, um, sexual sin, is that sometimes rather than seeing people as made in the image of God, we are pretty good at finding the biggest rock we can throw at somebody. And rather than standing with grace to receive a sinner, I think oftentimes we stand in judgment 
against people. And when we stand in judgment against people, we're just stone collectors. Brothers and sisters, I I do not want us to um, certainly compromise the truth of of God's ways. I mean, certainly when we think about the the sin of adultery, um, the the confession, the larger um, confession actually talks about, the larger um, Westminster Confession talks about it in this way. You know, what are the sins forbidden in the seventh commandment? The sins forbidden in the seventh commandment besides the neglect of the duties required are adultery, fornication. You know, adultery is when someone is married or in a marital relationship and they they go outside the bounds of that relationship to have, you know, sexual relations. Fornication is you have two people who aren't married to anyone, but they come together. Rape, incest, sodomy, and all unnatural lusts, all unclean imaginations, thoughts, purposes, and affections, all corrupt or filthy communications or listening thereunto. Wanton looks, impudent or light behavior, and then the list goes on from there. And, and, and what the law is meant to do is the law is meant to reveal our sin and our need and lead us to Jesus. But as the people of God, sometimes we might be apt to use the law to batter others so that we feel better about ourselves. One of the, the, the biggest issues right now in the, in the church that we see is, um, is issues of LGBTQ. What does Jesus say about these things? What do, what do we say about these things? Well, we would uphold the, the biblical standard of marriage. It's one woman with one man forever. But I know that there are those who struggle there are those who struggle in our community with uh, same-sex attraction. There are those probably, I mean, I, I'm not ignorant enough to think that there might not even be people here today who struggle with that. And I'm here to say, like, I'm not here to condemn you and say that you're, you're not fit for use. But when you encounter Jesus, when you encounter Jesus, he takes condemned buildings and makes them places of worship. You see, in 1 Corinthians 6, we're actually likened to being the temple of God. And when the Holy Spirit indwells a believer, when a Holy Spirit uh, indwells a sinner, then that person becomes a beautiful building used for the benefit of the kingdom of God. And the problem is, is that in the midst of this, the, the words of condemnation ring true over and over again because we hear people say things to us like, you know, you're not good enough. How can God use you who's a great sinner? I mean, all of us are sinners, right? I mean, all of us sin every day in thought, word, and deed, and yet the words of condemnation, that is the native language of Satan, our accuser. Zechariah 3, or even in Job, but Zechariah 3 talks about this. You know, it's, it's, it's a wonderful um, prophecy in Zechariah. In 3 verse 1, it says, Then he showed me Joshua the high priest standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at the right hand to accuse him. You know, again, Satan wants to condemn, he wants to accuse. And the Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire. 
Now Joshua was standing before the angel clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken away your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban. So you see what happens there is that this is a picture of what happens. Satan condemns, Satan accuses, but what God does, and he does this through Jesus Christ, is Jesus takes off our filthy rags and he clothes us with robes of righteousness, imputed righteousness, credited to our account because of our faith and trust in Jesus. And this is what happens in John chapter 8, is this woman who is, is laying condemned, Jesus says, I will make you fit for use. You see, when you encounter Jesus, something happens so that you are useful in the kingdom of God. The struggle that we have, the struggle that we will have our entire lives is not believing the lies that we are no longer useful or fit for use because of our sinfulness. And every time you sin, every time that happens, you know, Satan just whispers. He whispers in your ear, you're not good enough. Every time you, you yell at your children, every time you dismiss Bible study, every time you don't pray, I mean prayerlessness, you know, all of these things that you do, every time you're, you're in your car and you're yelling at somebody and, you know, like, um, I mean, I, I was coming to a roundabout and a guy came running around. I guess he thought I was going to, you know, like move into the roundabout, but I wasn't. And he, he gave me like uh, not a nice hand gesture, you know, as he was running around right up there. Um, I don't think he's here today. Um, I don't think. But you know what? When he did that, uh, I, I was not praying for him. Matter of fact, I'm like, I should follow him. I did not. I did not. I went home. Uh, and then I, but, but I look at those times and I'm like, man, there's just right on the edge, right on the edge of my own heart is this sort of self-justifying thing. And Satan comes and he says, how can you stand up in a pulpit on Sunday morning and deliver the word of God? when you have that much anger and you're that close to being a fool. You see, Satan condemns, but Jesus renews and renovates. Satan takes and he tries to destroy, but Jesus, Jesus, um, look at what he does. Because in the midst of John chapter 8, and as they, they continued to ask him, he stood up and said to them, let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. And once more he bent down and wrote on the ground. But when they heard it, they went away one by one, beginning with the older ones. And Jesus was left alone with the woman standing before him. I just want you to know, too, the only person that could have justifiably thrown a stone at this woman was Jesus. He was the only righteous one among them. And Jesus stood up and said to her, and just, I want you to think about this too. I mean, I, I don't, I'm, I'm, this is a little bit extra biblical, but if this woman is there and these, these men who are there, they begin to, um, when they heard it, they went away one by one. As they went away, they probably began to drop their stones. If, if you were that woman and you're looking down and you start to hear stones drop, you're wondering what's going on. You begin to hear feet depart rather than come near you. And then she looks up and she is left with Jesus. 
And Jesus said to her, and Jesus is so full of grace and truth here. Jesus stood up and said to her, woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? Has no one said that you are unfit for use? And she says to him, no one, Lord. Now, Lord could be the um, use of the word sort of sir. Like, no, sir, nobody is. Or it could be that the work of the Spirit is, is causing her to believe that this is the Lord of the universe. But certainly her encounter with Jesus changes everything. She said, no one, Lord. And Jesus said, neither do I condemn you. Go, and from now on, sin no more. And I think what we see there is like, certainly she's going to be a sinner the rest of her life, but he's specifically saying this particular sin, this adultery that you've been committing, sin no more. You see, he is calling her to faith and repentance. You know, Jesus is not light on sin. Jesus is full of grace, but also full of truth. And Jesus wants his people to rely upon him, to trust in him, to push away the accusations of the enemy so that they might fully follow him. And he doesn't have his law. His law, the law of God that's found in the scriptures, the law of, you know, that again, one woman for one man forever. It is meant so that our, our society will flourish. It's meant so that the kingdom of God will flourish. It's meant so that we will be taken care of by God himself. It's not something to be used to batter anyone, but rather it is used as a guide to reveal our need for Jesus. And if we are found in Jesus, it is meant to be a guide so that we might be able to, to trust in him. You see, the thing about this story is without Jesus, she is unfit for use in the eyes of men. But when she encounters the Lord God of heaven, he saves her. I would hope that as a church, we would be people who do not pick up rocks to throw at others, but that we would have open hands of welcome because we all know that we are sinners saved by grace in Christ alone. I want to share with you um, this idea of, of condemnation. Um, it's probably one of my favorite stories in, in a little book that some of you have heard of. It's called Pilgrim's Progress. Um, it's a great story about where the accuser comes and he says that you're unfit for use. It's when Christian, this man on this uh, journey, again, this is an allegory about uh, progressive sanctification where you know, someone goes, this pilgrim becomes a Christian, and then he goes from the city of destruction to the celestial city. It's a great story. But in the midst of this wilderness wandering, he encounters Satan. And he says this um, in this story, soon Apollyon, which is another name for Satan, came near and, and Apollyon was a hideous monster to behold. He was covered with scales like a fish, of which he was very proud. He had wings like a dragon, feet like a bear, and a mouth like a lion. And out of his belly came fire and smoke. He came up and stared at Christian with a most horrible look and asked, Stranger, where did you come from and where are you going? And Christian says, I am from the city of destruction and I'm going to the city of Zion. 
Apollyon then says, then you are one of my subjects, for all that country of destruction belongs to me. I'm the prince and God of it. Why have you run away from your king? Were it not that I might get more service out of you, I would strike you down right here. And Christian says, I was indeed born in your dominion, but your service was too hard and your wages were such that no one could live on them, for the wages of sin is death. Therefore, when I had opportunity, I did like many others. I left that miserable country to find a better life. Apollyon says, you must know that no prince in that dominion gives up his subjects willingly, neither will I give you up. But since you complain of the service and wages, we can fix that. You go back, and whatever the country can afford in the way of pay, I will see that you get it. And Christian says, but I have now given myself to another, to the king of all princes, and I cannot go back. Napoleon says, you have done according to the proverb, you have gone from bad to worse, you have jumped out of the frying pan into the fire, but it is common for those who have accepted your king's promise and given themselves to his service after trying that way for a while to give him the slip and return to my dominion. You do the same and all shall be well. And Christian says, my Lord has taken my burden and given me peace. I have given him my faith and sworn my allegiance to him. If I go back now, I should be hanged as a traitor. Napoleon says, you did the same to me, but I am willing to forget it if you will go back and be loyal to your former master. And Christian says, what I promised to you was in my youth before I knew any better. But now the prince I serve is able to absolve me and pardon all that I did while in your service. And all besides to you, to tell the truth, Mr. Apollyon, I like his service, his wages, his servants, his government, his company, and his country much better than yours and all that you can promise. And you have never been one to keep your promises anyway. I am his servant, and I will follow him. But then Apollyon gets, he says this, that is pure sentiment. Consider again in cold blood what you are likely to encounter in the way that you have chosen. You know that for the most part his followers suffer reproaches, perils, weariness, stripes, stonings, imprisonment, pain, and death, all because they oppose me and my kingdom. Think how many of them have been put to horrible death, and your master never came from his mysterious, invisible, exalted dwelling place to deliver them. How can you count his service better than mine? Not many of my servants have ever been martyred. All the world knows very well that I deliver, either by power or by fraud, those who have followed me from your master in his power and be sure I will deliver you. Christian says, when he for a time does not deliver his servants from trouble, it is for their good. It strengthens their faith and their love for the right and affords an opportunity for them to show the sincerity of their loyal, uh, of their love and add to their rewards. And for the death, and for the death you speak of, it is only temporary. He delivers his servants out of death and gives them a perfect life beyond. His servants do not expect immediate deliverance from the petty dangers and discomforts of this present perishing world. And then Apollyon says, but you have already been unfaithful to him. You see, this is where he says, look, if I can't get you out of fear, and if I can't get you by offering you the world, then this is what he says. He accuses the Christian, and he does this all the time to us. Apollyon looks at Christian and says, but you have already been unfaithful to him. And Christian says, where have I been unfaithful to him? And Apollyon, the, Satan says, you stumbled and fell into the slough of despond. You turned aside out of the way to go to legality's house for the help of the advice of one worldly wise man. You slept and lost your book on the way. You were ready to turn back at the sight of the chained lions. And when you talk of what you have seen and heard in the way and all your Lord has done for you, it is with a certain inward desire for vain glory. 
Essentially, he says, look, you've yelled at your, your wife. You have not cared for that which you have been given. You, have, you don't even believe some of the time. He's bringing up all the past sins that we have. And what I love that Christian does is he doesn't refute these things. He says to him, he says, all this is true and much more which you have left out. But the prince I serve is merciful and ready to forgive. At that point, Apollyon flies into a terrible rage and attacks Christian, and with the armor of God, Christian is able to, to weather the storm and, and to beat him back. See, brothers and sisters, when, when Satan comes to condemn you, when people come to condemn you and say that you are unfit for use, we trust and believe and rely upon Jesus who redeems us and does a work of renovation in our lives. And then he indwells us with the Holy Spirit and he takes this condemned house and turns it into a temple of God where streams of living water flow forth. Do you feel condemned at times? Do you feel like you don't measure up to all the other people around you? Do you feel like you're an unworthy Christian or a flawed believer? Then you're in good company. You've come to the right place. You know, later on this year, we'll, we'll take nominations for, for elder. And I want you to know that you won't find any perfect elders here. You will only find flawed sinful individuals. But they are renewed and renovated by the Spirit of God. Trust and believe. You know, in front of us, we have this um, picture of the gospel working itself out. And I love this picture because it is your know, signs and seals of the covenant of grace and this bread represents the body of Christ broken for those who believe. And this cup represents his blood shed for the forgiveness of sins. And we come as you know, condemned sinners, but when we come to this table, we come and we go that, yes, I believe and I am declared righteous because of Jesus. Because Jesus on the cross took all of my sin upon himself and he has given and credited me with his righteousness. And I can stand before God because I am just like in Zechariah 3 where the high priest's garments are taken off and he's put on you know, righteous white linen garments. We stand before God with the righteousness of Christ, adopted into his family because of all that Jesus has done. And, and God welcomes and we welcome those who are condemned, who are now temples of the living God, to come and partake. Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we are grateful for this bread. And we are grateful for this, this juice which represents his blood. Father, as we come, Father, I pray that we would know that we would be able to push off the condemnation of man and of the enemy. And that we would put on Christ. We would know that we are saved because of what he has done for us. And Father, as we sing, Father, help us to sing 
as people who are not condemned, but people who, who love and are loved by a, a merciful, loving Father. Father, may we experience the love of Christ. Father, as we partake of this bread and drink of this cup, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would do a work of the Spirit in us, that you would fill us up, and that we would abide in Christ and be connected to him. Father, may we love Jesus more. And Father, if there are those who have stones ready to hurl, Father, I pray, Lord, for faith and repentance. I pray, Lord, that they would drop their stones and recognize that they are sinners in need of the saving grace of Jesus as much as anyone here today. Father, help us. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.